Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 10th episode of Weaving Myths. Weaving Myths is a podcast focused on tabletop role-playing games and specifically playing them through the play-by-post format. I'm your host, Nathan, and joining me today are Ruben. Hello. And Colin. Good evening, everyone. We are all moderators or administrators on Mythweavers, a play-by-post gaming website, and we are here to help bring your game to the next level. If you're not familiar with Mythweavers, you can find it at myth-weavers.com. As always, we are joined by the impeccable text chat, which members of Mythweavers are using right now to ask questions and contribute to the discussion. Today on the agenda, we have Uniting the Party, Rewards and Loot, and Comedy and Humor in Play-by-Post, all of which we'll be talking about over the next hour or hour and a half or so. At the end, we'll open the floor to a live Q&A session from the text chat where anyone can ask us anything, be it about Mythweavers, gaming, or anything else they want to know. So, without any further ado, let's jump right in. The first topic on the agenda this evening is uniting the party. So, when you start a game on Mythweavers, it's almost inevitable that the players and their characters will have different goals, motivations, and just differences between their characters that kind of separate them initially. uh, So, most players might agree on at least a common goal. For example, defeating the bad guy. But how they go about doing that is another matter entirely. So I want to talk, let's talk a little bit about how we can kind of reconcile those differences between the players and characters. And if I can borrow from D&D for a second, how we can reconcile the differences between different alignments of characters, which I think is the easiest way to explain this sort of difference in philosophy between characters. So I don't think it has to be inevitable. I think when you're working up your game advertisement, when you're starting your game, if you are clear enough in your advertisement, you can kind of attract enough players that have the same kind of generic bent that you can get around all this. In other words, when you go to make your game ad, pretty much put in the ad, I want characters of, for example, neutral good alignment. All characters should have a good alignment. And you should be working to save the fair Princess Buttercup. That is the goal of this game. That is what you make your game around. I would agree with Ruben on that. And it helps to, even if you have characters that might not necessarily agree with each other, if before the game begins, the players can kind of have some back and forth and actually kind of figure out, okay, you know, our characters are going to clash, but this could be fun. And as long as the players are kind of in sync with that idea, you can still make it work. A good example being in Nathan's Depths of Pond game. Sandrinan and I are both playing Inquisitors, but with two very opposite personalities. But we knew going in, our characters are going to fight. They're going to clash. And we just planned to, you know, make that happen, knew it was all in good fun, and work around it. Well, correct me if you're wrong, but... You're both Inquisitors, so your main goal is exterminate the Xenos, right? Sandrinan's character's goal is deal justice and be merciful. My Inquisitor is a different house and is the type that's purged the wicked through any means possible and to hell with mercy. So did you guys have an overarching goal? Like the, the big way they general picture goal? The way they approach uh, how to handle evil is extremely different. There's already been conflict. There's only going to be more, but we both think it's absolutely hilarious. 
Um, I'll jump in here and say that, yes, there is an overarching plot, which is that they're all working together presently to stop a cult of evil doers from uh, destabilizing the capital city of a nation. So your overarching goal is stop the evil plot, stop the evil cult. We both agree on this, right? Very good point. So, yeah, overarching plot to kind of coordinate the players is important. Right, and if you're setting up your game, and if you're recruiting new players, all you have to do is, this game is about rescuing Princess Peach. You must all have a motivation to rescue Princess Peach from the evil King Koopa. What is it? You give them all one big goal to work together, so no matter how different their other goals or personalities are, you're still working toward the one big end-game goal. So I'm going to jump ahead in the notes just a little bit, but as part of the kind of introduction to this whole topic, um, there are also systems out there where it's entirely expected that the players will treat each other with disdain and uh, suspicion. So I think the most common ones that come to my mind are Shadowrun and Paranoia, where the players aren't necessarily trustworthy of each other right from the get-go. And I'm going to argue Shadowrun on that point. I think depending on the addition and who's running Shadowrun, yeah, you can be distrustful. I would argue the older and farther you go back in Shadowrun, the more you're going to trust each other. But your point's taken. Yeah, if you're running something like Paranoia, or if you're running the game where it's, oh yeah, Bob is going to screw me over, then yeah, you don't need this cohesion. But not all Shadowrun is super Paranoia-friendly. Sure, it definitely depends on the style of Shadowrun you're running. Uh, Tiffany Corda mentions that Vampire the Masquerade can be like that as well. And I've never actually played Vampire the Masquerade, but from what I understand about it, it's very heavily, like, politics and intrigue and, like, vampire houses against one another. It can be. I played in games where we're all super united against the Camarilla because we're all Sabat. And I played in games where, oh, I'm not going to trust the player next to me because they're probably working against me. Yeah, Vampire the Masquerade is one of those really variable games like Shadowrun. I think there are very few games, actually, where it's expected that everybody's going to be antagonistic. And I think Paranoia is one of the big ones. And I think it just goes back to when you start a game, make sure all your players are on the same wavelength. Make sure everybody knows what they're buying into. And when you start a game, especially if you're doing open recruitment and you have an ad, be very, very clear about what kind of game this is going to be. Sure. So the meat of kind of what we're trying to talk about is what happens when you are upfront about this, but there's still conflict between players. What can we do to resolve those conflicts between our players or the distrust that can come up even if you didn't intend for it to happen. So if you've been clear about what you expect and you've got some oddballs, uh, first thing you do, start with action. Don't start with, oh, you all meet in a bar and you're ordering your first round and the barmaid has great big bosoms and the stew is made of lamb. Start with, you all meet in a bar and you're eating your meal and then this weird Weasley guy in the corner suddenly starts jumping on the weird halfling barmaid, and she's really, really distressed. Give them something they can all jump in on 
together immediately. Sure, and I'll give another example of something like that, where you can start with like something that brings the party together. In the D&D 5th edition adventure, Out of the Abyss, you all the players start as slaves of the drow, which, first of all, gives them a common enemy to come together against. So the entire party should be working against the drow. And then the additional goal is they need to escape from the drow. So they have to work together to get out of that situation. Uh, and I can, I've found that similar situations like that can bring a party together faster than basically any other game opening. So common enemies and a, a true goal to work towards together right from the start. Uh, yeah, bottom line is take your party, give them one common outside enemy that they can all work together to defeat that they can't defeat on themselves. Just put them all in the same situation and send them up against a situation they can't defeat themselves. Trying to generic it out evidently badly. I knew what you meant. I was following. Well, and to tag on to that, whatever you're doing, just make sure whatever players you have are buying into this. And I think, again, it's really good to be clear with your advertisement Hey, you all are going to start as it, you know, slaves of the drow, and you're going to have to fight your way out of their captivity. So, you know, make a character for that. Just make sure the players you have are buying into what you're selling. That will help immensely. Absolutely. Vague goals starting in with an ad or even at the beginning when you're still finishing organizing the game are not going to lead to a happy party as you progress. Sure, and... I would like to throw out there that it's good for the GM of the game to give the players a common goal, a common enemy, so that they can work together. But sometimes what you have to do is let them forge their own bonds, because the bonds that players forge between each other, rather than what's given to them by the GM, are usually a lot stronger than what the GM has given them. So if players have an opportunity... and this ties into my next point, too. Um, if players have an opportunity to build relationships before the game actually starts, so like a pre-game in-character thread where people can yes. talk, where people can talk things out and get their characters interacting and being friendly and not in a stressful situation, they can build bonds before the game even starts. And that way, when the game does start, they've already got this kind of established rapport with one I will say that is something I've been seen as a more prevalent occurrence, something where leading up to the selection process, it's almost always a bar from what I've seen, regardless of fantasy, modern, sci-fi. But there's always, not always, but there's a lot more often in games leading up to the start, a way to have the characters interact so the game master can get a feel for them and they can get a feel for each other. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, this is a late, not late, a new thing I've seen on the Weave lately, the pregame thread. So where you're doing your advertisements, and most games have a couple of weeks to do advertisements at least, starting a thread where all the people who have made applications can jump into a thread where they can play their characters in character. I've noticed this as a new thing. It's super helpful. Being able to see how all the other characters will play off of each other really gives you a great idea 
of how people are going to interact and what characters are going to work well with others. It's a new thing that I really, really encourage all the other new DMs to do. Just start a new kind of like pre-game and character thread because it gives you a great idea of who's posting what and like who posts well and who gets along with well. Just, yeah, this new thing, great idea. So I just wrapped up the application process for my... Ah, uh, we're getting kind of off topic, aren't we? Um, <laughs> you are. Well, all right. Well, I'll I'll bring it up later if we have time. No, do it. <laughs> Go ahead. All right. Okay. So I just wrapped up applications for my Starfinder game, and I did in a pre-game in-character thread, which was it was literally just a bar on a space station where people could go and they could role play, and they didn't have to roll dice. They could assume that everything they did succeeded. Blah 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 blah. It was basically a free-form role play that people could use to flesh out their characters as they were constructing them. And I found something really interesting, and I, I know we've talked about this before, but my rubric that I use to judge applications usually picks out the best six to eight applications in a game. And I found a very strong correlation between people who posted frequently and posted well in the pregame in-character thread those people had significantly higher scores than people who did not participate at all. So if you're working on a character and the GM provides an opportunity for you to do pre-game roleplay, do it. Because it will help you get in the mindset of your character and help you flesh them out more and more so you can create better and better characters. That's especially useful if the Game Master uses a rubric of death. So you can get in the mentality before you finish your application. So for my last Shadowrun game, I did the same thing, and I found the pregame thread helped me overcome a couple of my own biases, and I made a couple of choices I wouldn't have made otherwise when left to my own devices without it. I think it's really, really helpful, and if you're a player... Really, really engage with that thread because it really, really helps. All right, let's let's get back on topic now. What was the topic? The topic was uniting the party, and we we kind of went off topic a little bit into pre pre game in character threads, but only kind of. Well, I, I, it just I serves it just serves to show that that tool can be extremely valuable when you're trying to build a cohesive party. Well, when I'm a GM, I would much rather start with players that are invested in each other, who are ready to deal with the plot, and not dick around with themselves, as opposed to a bunch of separate players who are like, I want to go rescue the princess. I want to kill the king of England. I want to save all the wolves in the woods. I want to discover the biggest spell ever. Like, I'd like to pick characters that all want roughly the same things. So we've talked about some things that you can do before the game starts. But after the game starts, if a problem comes up, there isn't necessarily a whole lot of time to spend on these really deep character-building roleplay sessions. But I have noticed that a lot of people... Well, I don't, maybe not a lot of people, but something people maybe don't think about is... For example, say the party has to travel from one town to another, and it's going to take three or four days to do that. Well, those are perfect role-playing opportunities, where suddenly at night, everybody's sitting around the campfire 
just what they don't talk to one another they don't eat dinner together like these are perfect opportunities for the players to role play and build characters and like forge those bonds that we were talking about earlier like player forged uh bonds are the most powerful i believe or something i might recommend is the gm could potentially throw out a topic and say hey your characters should talk about this and kind of force the characters to discuss a topic that requires some insight into the thoughts of the character where they reveal uh, personality traits or they reveal opinions and ideas that allow characters to build bonds together. So a system I'll throw out here is Savage Worlds, where not all the people know this, but there is rules for interludes and interludes or whatever happens between adventures where you take a deck of cards, you draw a card and depending on the suit, your character has to tell a story based on that suit. So if you draw diamonds, it's a story of desire. If you draw hearts, it's a story of love. You draw, I think clubs is a story of opposition. Yeah, I don't know them all, but Throw it up kind of randomly. Basically, when your characters sit down, like between adventures, give them some impetus to start talking about their character so that the other characters can start hooking into that backstory. And this is where a randomizer gets really helpful because it gets the player thinking in a direction they might not think about. So if you can kind of dictate a random topic, maybe you'll kind of get the player to kind of unleash about their character and kind of talk about something interesting, which has a better chance of kind of sparking the imagination of another player. Did that make sense? I believe so. I followed it. I followed it too, but I'm not the best metric for that. It's just the thing I've used where I've had a bunch of new players. They all make their own characters. So like Nate says, the lot. Like, the first couple of nights, oh, you're around the campfire. Tell a story about your character. I drew a diamond. Tell a story about your character wanting something. Basically, the GM kind of has to jump in and give a little impetus to make the player talk about something that might not be obvious. Because when you make the players think about a thing that's not obvious, it might spark something in another player to give them a connection that kind of just builds off the spontaneity. Yep, that, I totally agree. That's pretty much exactly what I was going for. <laughs> there are also some systems as well. Um, in this case, the one most recent for me is Planet Mercenary. It's an RPG based off Schlock Mercenary, where once you have the party, they kind of have to hash out who's what officer role, and then they actually have to design a company and design a ship together as a group. And that can also really help with coordinating the uh, party as well as kind of getting a feel for how all the characters will interact with each other. Did that make sense? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the basic goal is throw your players a 180 to put them off kilter so they have to think about the character in a different way. And when they do that, it might spark another player to think about their character in a different way. And therefore, you start building connections off the weirdness slash awkwardness. So I'm going to throw a little bit of a warning out there. So all of these 
in-character interactions are fantastic and they work really well. But I just want to throw out a warning that if your characters, in, or if all the characters in the party don't speak a common language, none of it works. <laughs> so if if five people speak common and one person doesn't speak common, then nothing you do can bring that can break that language barrier unless they spend time learning the language. So just a just a little cautionary tale there. I've had that happen in one of my real life games where everybody in the party spoke a certain set of languages and then one person didn't speak any of those languages. So no crap? Really? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure how that happened, but it didn't really come up until the second session or so. Like the first session they were in a battle. So there wasn't really a whole lot of time to communicate. But the second session, they actually had time to sit down and talk to one another. And they realized one of the characters did not speak any of the languages the rest of the party spoke. Wow, because two and a half decades. And that's never come up for me. We (laughs) always spoke one common knowledge. But yeah, good thing. Vet the languages of any character you accept. And if there's not a common one among all characters, you screwed. I mean, it's a, it's an easy enough thing to fix, but it was kind of hilarious when the person said, I don't speak that language. And then someone else named another language and they said, yeah, I don't speak that one either. And then we went through the whole list and finally everybody just kind of looked at one another and went, so we can't talk to you. <laughs> I mean, really, when you put that point out, I'm like, when has this ever happened? I really thought that was a pointless odd. Uh, so it's happened. Yeah, speaking from experience there, so... Damn! I mean, um, like I said, it's an easy enough fix. It's literally just GM says, get one of the other languages that people speak. I mean, it's it's an easy fix, but it's still hilarious when it comes up. I mean, doesn't everybody know common? Depends on the characters, I think. Wow, uh, yeah. So, lesson learned. Make sure everybody speaks the same language, or things go bad, predictably. Or hilariously, but yeah, it doesn't end well overall. Oh, I can think of a game of paranoia where everybody starts out knowing the wrong language. I'm picturing that in my head, and it sounds hilarious. I mean, wouldn't it be awesome? Everybody speaks like, oh, you speak English, you speak Spanish, you speak Esperanto, you speak Swahili, you speak French, you speak Latin. That would be glorious. It would only last maybe two hours, but it would be a glorious two hours. And Orcane Desperado points out, you can purposely have the character who doesn't speak any other language, which can be purposeful, but that's a situation where you have to tell the GM ahead of time, and all the other players have to buy in, so all the other players know, okay, we're going to be starting talking to stupid, we have to make stupid know what we're talking about. Not the other character who doesn't know language is stupid, but that's kind of the situation. It It's a situation that you really have to know a lot of the players and the GM ahead of time, but you can't do it. All right, so another quick... I'll throw out a couple quick ideas for people before we move on to the next topic of things you can do to help bring players together more. Um, so one, one thing you can do is you can create an NPC that's friendly with the entire party. And when the bad guy shows up and kills that NPC, the entire party is like, you killed Kenny, you bastards! And then they go after the bad guy, and that gives everybody a common goal. You get one Kenny per campaign. 
use it wisely. <laughs> I don't know, in our upcoming campaign, it's not Kenny, it's a Nathan. Well, yeah, we have Meat Shield Nathan, and he's going to be awesome. But, yeah, you get one Kenny per game. Um, so another thing you can do is you can, during character creation or even afterwards, you can have all of the players have a common experience from the past. So, like, say they all grew up in the same town and that one town got burned to the ground. Suddenly, they all have a common backstory that they can use to be like, oh, you're from this place and you you went through the same thing I did. Okay, I can trust you now. It also works... It can be really interesting if you reveal that to the players after the game starts, where all of a sudden they realize, oh, I didn't realize we all had this sh- this same shared experience. Interesting. And it can bring the party together quickly as well. It just takes a deft hand. Like, if you're going to dictate this, make it pretty clear up front, just so you don't get all the players writing a lot of stuff out that has to be revised. Like, you have to be pretty clear about this from the upset. Outset, not upset. All right. I think that's all I had for that particular topic. Do you guys have anything you want to add real quick before we move on? I'm ready. Let's do it. If you're going to start a game, start with a theme. Start with a strong elevator pitch and go, this game is about rescuing Zelda. Zelda is trapped by Ganon. All characters must want to rescue Zelda. Why are you rescuing Zelda? Just start with a really strong, unifying theme. Make it clear in the application. So when you start getting characters, they all have that one same starting goal. Doesn't matter what everything else is, but they have that one thing that grounds them all together. So if you want everybody to get along to start, start with a really strong, unifying goal and make that really apparent to start in the application. I will 100% agree with that. If you, from the start, say, this is what's going to happen, your play, your character should be ready for this to happen, then things will go smoothly pretty much every time. Yeah, just be clear. Like, this game is about rescuing princesses. Make a character that rescues princesses. Don't make Wolverine the loner, or things will go bad. All right, well, our next topic for the evening is rewards and loot. And before we actually talk about this topic, I want to preface this by saying that when we're talking about rewards and loot, there's no way in the short amount of time that we have that we can cover every possible system out there. So for the sake of simplicity, we're going to talk about things in kind of a D&D Pathfinder uh, D&D analog context. Because I think those are the easiest things for people to draw parallels to. So if we don't talk about loot in like Shadowrun or Call of Cthulhu or those types of systems, it's not because we don't want to. It's because we don't have enough time to cover every possible system and every possible reward those systems have. Um, But a lot of the ideas that we're going to talk about can be modified specifically for any almost any system. So I just wanted to let people know that if we don't talk about your system in particular, that's why. (laughs) Just loot is such a broad, broad category. We could do episodes on this. And we just chose to take one popular system and focus on that as an example. 
Definitely. And there's no reason we can't come back to this topic in the future. I would love to do a like Shadowrun specific rewards and loot discussion, and I would love to be able to talk about like different systems at some point. But for the moment, we're going to start with the most common one, which is D&D, Pathfinder, those types of systems. And to be fair, we're talking physical, tangible rewards, not non-physical rewards, because that's a whole different beast. Yeah, and what Ruben means by that is experience, like perks or like DM cookies or those types of things. We're talking about cold hard cash, magical items, um, like lands and titles. So, <laughs> Mick the Rogue says the power gamer always loves the plus five Vorpal Greatsword. <laughs> and you know what? That's a good lead on because we all love loot. Every one of you. Yeah, even the story gamer among you going, oh, I don't need loot. No, you love loot. We all love loot. And loot is one of the most tangible, immediate ways to reward a play you like. So, I mean, no loot is going to be the same, but when you reward loot, you're rewarding a behavior or an action you really, really like. So be careful in how you reward it. Because you want to reward actions and things you approve of and don't reward things you don't like. Colin, were you going to jump in there? I was just going to say, you know, it's not just loot, it's also experience. Because every player wants to know how much experience they got for burning down the orphanage. <laughs> uh, I mean, you're you're not wrong. We, we, we can talk about a li- that a little bit at the end. Uh, or like Ruben said, I mean, it's such a broad topic, we can make this a multi-episode bit. I would be fine with that. Uh, let me pose the question to text chat. Would you guys be okay with us dedicating a few episodes, or having a couple segments over the course of the next couple episodes dedicated to rewards, XP, loot, uh, different systems, those things? Do you guys want that? I think Chimi's response of you do you boo boo is the best response so far. <laughs> Alright, general consensus among text chat seems to be that, yes, we probably should dedicate a couple segments over the course of the next few episodes to rewards. So, we will do that. Uh, so, today we're going to talk about D&D and Pathfinder, primarily. And in the future, we'll talk about, like, Shadowrun. We'll talk about uh, Colin. We'll get you to talk about Stars Without Number. So on and so forth. It is actually growing in popularity, so that'll work. Okay, so... The first thing I want to talk about with D&D slash Pathfinder rewards is when your players get a lot of gold, they may not realize all the things they can actually spend that gold on. So the first thing that comes to mind is I'm going to buy magic items, but there are other things that might have a better return on investment. So one of the most rewarding things I've seen players do when they have a lot of gold to spend is they go in together on a piece of real estate or a building or a business. And actually, one of my real life games, one of the most fun things we ever did was we pooled our gold and we bought a tavern and suddenly we were in charge of making sure this tavern was successful. So we had to renovate it, we had to expand it with different buildings and, like, eventually it turned into this base of operations for us that we used throughout the rest of the campaign. So, while some people might immediately jump to, oh, I get the next next magic upgrade, um, I would encourage your players to think about the other things they could potentially do with all that gold. 
Okay, so the next thing we're going to talk about is that um, goals can be a huge determining factor of what you actually give your players. So not every player is interested in having a stack of gold laying around. Perhaps that's the most versatile thing you can give your players, but perhaps your player is more interested in, say, like raising an army, and by slaying a local dragon, they gain notoriety as a hero, and suddenly more people start coming to them saying, hey, I heard you're making an army, I'd like to join that, can I get in on that? Um, so if a player has certain goals, you can give them rewards that progress them towards those goals, and it makes the rewards not only important for the player, but also for their character, too. And I'm sure we could have an entire discussion about how a player is not a character and a character is not a player, but I won't go there at the moment. So, the best way to kill the murder hobo, kill the hobo. If you give a character a reason to invest in a community, they stop becoming a murder hobo and just become a murder resident, I guess is the word. But throw out NBCs and businesses that your players are going to be really interested in, and then let them sink more and more money into those businesses. And as they sink more and more money, give them better and better rewards. So if Bob finds that Joe the Blacksmith is his buddy and he gives Joe the Blacksmith 50 gold, maybe next time Bob shows up, Joe the Blacksmith says, hey, I made some half plate. Would you like some? And, you know, Bob is like, yeah, I want some half plate. So Bob takes the half plate and then Joe's like, well, do you have a little more money? And so Bob gives Joe more money, and then next time that Bob shows up, Joe's like, hey, do you want some mithril breastplate? And he's like, hell yeah, I want some mithril breastplate. Uh, every time the players throw money back into the community, give the players better rewards for investing in the community. So give them reasons to sink money into any sort of community thing. Another thing you can always do is more of a... Less of a tangible reward, but you can award titles for significant deeds. You know, okay, you're now a baron. Here's your lands. And doing something like giving lands gives the players a blank template to figure out what they want to do with it, how they want to kind of make an investment and make it back. Right, and the more the more importance or focus you give on all the NPCs that work that land the more the players are going to be invested in that land and the more money they're going to throw back into it. And I'll definitely mention that it doesn't have to necessarily be be giving money to certain people. So, for example, if the king of the castle says, hey, go kill this dragon, you come back, you killed the dragon, and then they say, okay, well, now I owe you a favor. That can be huge at pretty much any moment. They can go to the king and say, hey, you owe me one, and basically get an entire country on their side. I mean, and that trickles down from the highest royalty all the way down to the local blacksmith. So even if it's something as simple as that you do a favor for the blacksmith and he gives you a 15% discount on weapons in the future, that's a reward too. I mean, you're not giving out gold directly, but you're giving out something that feels more like an actual reward that someone would do for you if you help them out. Well, and the bigger thing, too, is when you start bringing things like blacksmiths, weird rewards, like, oh, hey, we killed this red dragon, and I got this heart. What can you do with it? And he's like, 
Oh, I can make a fire weapon. So the more you tie in, bringing back weird things from the quests you give, back to the NPCs who can then make you cool things or do cool things, you start creating this feedback loop of, oh, I did a cool thing, must go check with community. Can community do me cool thing? Well, community give me a cool thing. Can I go do a new cool thing? Like, yeah, you want to kind of create that feedback loop. You have to be careful with it, too, though, because if you go too far, you wind up with your players going, oh, we're going to skin the dragon, harvest all its scales, harvest its bones, take its heart, and it just gets a little ridiculous if you get, take it too far. Yeah, right. I mean, you can't give a reward every time something new shows up, but, yeah, you have to balance it with, like, oh, I've seen this. Thanks, man. My forge is going to do really good, but I've seen this. Yeah, you have to balance it. Another thing you can do is, in particular, gold. It's the most common thing to give out, but it's kind of the most boring thing to give out. So you want to kind of spice it up. I know D&D for sure has this. Pathfinder, I would not be surprised to find, has this. But they have tables that you can convert gold into gems or art objects. And that makes the loot your players get. Yeah, it's still technically you're giving them gold because they're just going to turn around and sell it. Or they might turn it around and invest in the community. But it just makes it more interesting than here's another hundred gold. Here's instead, here's a painting of the local king that's worth about a hundred gold. Is always great. You have to be careful. If you just go, here's a painting worth a hundred gold. All you're doing is really giving out gold. If you're giving out art objects, let them haggle and let the characters that have proficiency and appraising maybe get more out of it than is really intended. If you just give an art object and just give the gold value, you're just given gold. It takes a little longer to describe. All right. When you give out magic items, don't give out you got a plus one longsword. That's boring. Give out, you have attained Reaper of Widows. This is a plus one longsword that cries whenever it's in the presence of a widow. Whenever you strike an enemy that has not been married, deals an extra 1d4 damage. Just nothing, no magic item should be boring. It should not be, you gain a longsword plus one. It should be, I gained Reaper of Widows. It's a plus one longsword that also when I attack an unmarried person, it gets an extra D4 damage. Uh, there's a really, really great AD Extra Minor Properties PDF that's available on DM's Guild, I think. I'll link it. Um, yeah, don't give a boring plus one weapon. Plus one weapons or armor or something should always have an extra thing. Don't make them ever boring. Give them... Plus one, plus this weird extra little benefit. I don't think I can add anything to that. That would be thorough. One thing I will add to that is if you're going to give your players an interesting item like that, you could always give them the option of actually making it themselves. So, for example, let's say they want a sword that does more damage against dragons. Well, okay, here's what you do for that. You get a dragon claw. You take it to the local blacksmith, and he helps the character 
turn it into a dragon bone sword that, because it's from a dragon, is infused with magic and does more damage to dragons. So that kind of gives them a unique item that they created and wouldn't otherwise exist without them. So getting your characters involved in the creation process of magical items, even if you don't... So, like, I know D&D 3.5 has really in-depth magic item creation rules, but maybe the NPC they're working with can kind of smooth over some of the gaps of actually making the item. I mean, bottom line, when you get an actual cool magic item, you should break the rules just a little. Those are the ones that end up being memorable. Like, oh, didact of intellect plus two, and you can speak an extra language? Kind of boring. Oh, but you get Carnifex, Harvester of Souls, plus one weapon. It deals an extra 1d4 damage to anybody who's after half their hit points. And whenever I kill a creature, it gets stored the sword. Then maybe I can speak the language of that creature. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, a little like Weapons of Legacy done better. Except Weapons of Legacy were a really cool idea. But they screwed up. But yeah, basically, a cool magic item shouldn't be boring, and it shouldn't be static. And when you introduce it, it should change over time. Definitely. And every edition of D&D and Pathfinder, well, there's only one edition of Pathfinder, but whatever, has the ability to design your own magical items. So you have the freedom to create basically anything you need for the situation. Or you can come up with something and then make it work within the rules. So it doesn't matter what the magical item is, as long as it can be explained in a way that works with the game, it could be literally anything. So you can come up with magical items that have special effects that aren't listed in books and aren't cataloged that you just flip through and you say, oh, that's cool, I'm going to buy that. No, instead it's, hey, here's this item. It's not in any book, it's unique, and it's really cool. So you can do that with basically any magic item. Bottom line is, the longer the character has to go into explaining the item, the better it probably was. If 10 years down the road says, oh yeah, man, I got a plus one short sword. You failed. But if 10 years down the road is like, oh man, let me tell you that the sword was called Cleaver of Shadows. And it was like, well, it was kind of a plus one sword, but it was so much cooler. Uh, you're doing your job. I think the absolute benchmark is you want every player, you know, years later to talk about that campaign and that character. The way for those that have seen the interview, Vin Diesel still talks about his first D&D character. That level of enthusiasm, exuberance, all that. You want that effect years later on everyone. Yeah, your item should be the thing of legend that gets told 20 years from now. And you shouldn't be another, oh, I got a plus one thing. I mean, my wife still talks about the familiar I first gave her her wizard 10 years ago. She still asks about it. It's still the reason I throw it up in games every once in a while. So I'll go a little bit of a different direction now. And we'll talk more about mundane items that you can give your players. And one thing I've found that people really like, at least from what I've seen, is they like vanity items. So they don't do anything. They just look really cool. So, as an example, a green cloak that, when it's nighttime, turn, looks black. 
to match the night sky. Like, it's just little things like that that can make a character more interesting for your players. And if they can visualize what the character looks like, they can connect with the character more readily than just a name on a page. So I'd say any item that's magical should be kind of weird or change how things look. Just people like things that make them look cool. So when you give anybody an item, tell them how it makes them look cooler. So like, yeah, the cloak looks black at night, so you're super black and cool. Like, changing appearance is not a mechanical thing, but by God, it can make your players seem really super awesome. So, so one of the best ways to change an item without making it more powerful or anything like that, if you're concerned about balance, but change the appearance of the item to the character, and that will make them feel so much cooler. Similarly, you can do the same thing with weapons. So perhaps maybe it's not a bow. Maybe it's a bow with blades on the arms that they can use as a melee weapon in addition to being a bow. It doesn't really change anything mechanically, because the player would still have to switch between melee and ranged anyway, but it just makes it that bow seems so much cooler than a regular one. So suddenly, it's not just a bow, it's my bladed bow of orc stomping. <laughs> right, just, you know what, even if items, so even if you go like, oh, this is a longsword, but it's super awesome, shoot thistles from the hilt, so it works as a longsword, plus a longbow. It, if you combine items, who cares, but it makes people feel so awesome. Just, yeah, when you're smashing similar game com uh, mechanics together, great idea. Oh, you've got the goose, no, that's a terrible name, but a uh, goose killer. It's a light crossbow, but it feels like a hand crossbow. So it's a hand crossbow with the stats of a light crossbow. It doesn't kill anything, but it makes somebody who uses the hand crossbow super happy. That was the terrible example. I'm sorry. All right. Um, um, let me think. We're getting, we're, we've been running for over an hour so far. So we let's move things along a little bit. We might have to skip our third topic for the evening for the moment and save it for next time. Which is fine. We'll still hit it in the future. Yeah. I, I'm telling you, we should have rewards for a whole thing by itself. I'm realizing that in retrospect. But you know what? The other topic... We can spin that for a whole episode. Easy. I agree. That can go for a while. So let's make that another episode. All right. The game of the week, man. Well, I do have a couple more things I want to talk about for rewards, though. <laughs> All right. Just a couple very quick things. I'll, I'll only be brief about these. But some ideas for people is to give out plot devices as rewards. So I think I speak for everyone when I say that Players of tabletop role-playing games want more tabletop role-playing games. So giving them a tool that lets them continue playing is exactly what people want. You can also give them mysterious items that the purpose or use is not immediately obvious, or they have to spend some time messing with it, figuring out what exactly it does and how it works. And last but not least, you can give out new ways of traveling or communicating. So if the party splits up, they can still communicate with one another, or you can give them something cool like 
an airship, or you can give them a wagon with horses, something they didn't have access to before that lets them travel in a new way. And can we go on to temporary rewards, like inspiration, or plot points, or fate points, or GM cookie? Uh, yeah, we can very briefly go into those. So not all rewards have to be permanent. If somebody does something awesome, but you're like, eh, you don't quite get the plus one sword, give them something else. Give them a re-roll, or a Benny, or a Fate Point, or whatever the game's current, like, mechanics are. Like, oh, you did awesome. Here's a Benny. And let them know it's because they're being awesome. But a lot of games have a different temporary currency that you can give a lot of them out per game going, dude, that was awesome. Have one of these. And very quickly, I'll jump in about inspiration, which is a D&D 5e mechanic. Um, there is an optional rule that your players can award inspiration to one another. So it can be abused, but if you keep it in control, it can be a really cool way for players to encourage one another to keep doing awesome things. Oh, dear God, use it. It's so much better. All right, so I know at the beginning of the show we said we were going to talk about comedy and humor in play-by-post, but we are running late. We have spent way too much time talking about rewards and loot and uniting the party, which is not a bad thing. I'm very glad that we spent a lot of time talking about those because they're both very important things. So we are going to skip comedy and humor for now. We will probably dedicate an episode in the future to it because it's also a very big topic that I think deserves the right amount of discussion. All right, we are going to jump straight into the game of the week. This week's game of the week is Darkness Falls, being run by Ashir. Darkness Falls is a Pathfinder game set in the world of Galarian, the official setting for Pathfinder. The characters for this game have been drawn to the town of Vron, where rumors are circulating that a group of monks are protecting knowledge of a coming apocalypse. Additionally, the town has become a turbulent place full of doomsayers and prophets of the apocalypse. In times like these, it's natural that heroes would be drawn to the town. Characters for this game will be starting at level 3, and Ashir is taking a pretty open stance. Almost anything goes, so players are free to take pretty much any route to character creation they see fit. As a side note, I have gamed with Ashir in the past, and her playstyle is one of my favorites on Mythweavers. She leans heavily towards anything that might make the story better, and is a big fan of well-developed, unique, and interesting characters. I expect the characters for this game will be very high quality. Also, another member of Mythweavers will be joining this game, as they had a hand in creating the game, Adele Raz. Between Ashir and Adele Raz, I can almost guarantee the game will have a solid story with interesting challenges and plot elements. Ashir is looking for somewhere between 1 to 3 players for Darkness Falls, and applications close on October 17th, so be sure to get those applications in soon. Alright, moving on. It is now time for everybody's favorite segment, the question and answer segment. So, anyone can ask us any, anything they want, be it about Mythweavers, gaming, or anything else you want to know. Uh, but first, we'll start with the mandatory question. What is making everybody happy this week? Start with Colin. We just harvested about 30 pounds of honey today. Ooh, from what fields? Just wildflower. Uh, my bees pretty much are the only hive kept or feral in the neighborhood, it seems. So, you know, old neighborhood flowering trees everywhere, they produce a lot of honey in the uh, 
fall and summer honey is really, really sweet this year. Ooh, sounds great. Where's my pike coming from? Huh? I'm getting some, right? Oh, you'd have to get here. Shipping isn't too easy with that stuff. But uh, yeah, we should get about 10 gallons of mead from that. Sexy. <laughs> All right, Ruben, what's making you happy this week? Okay. Uh, well, well, yeah, but it's every <laughs> week. No, this week is Cavaliers of Mars, which is currently on Kickstarter by Richard Thomas. It's so any of you who remember John Carter on Mars, it's that an awesome RPG love letter to that. I'll be linking it. Uh, yeah, it's super awesome RPG stuff on Mars for like super awesome pulp action on Mars. Yeah, it's super awesome. Also, my nephew just very, very recently finished Lost Minds of Pandelver. He asked me for a bunch of advice throughout it, and I'm happy to report his wizard survived the whole thing, and the haste he dropped when fighting the dragon was key. So, go, go, my nephew, because, yay, finishing Lost Minds of Pandelver. All right, and for me, uh, Miss Nate, soon to be Mrs. Nate, we have locked down a venue for our wedding, which means that we are in full wedding planning. Uh, she's doing most of the work, as expected, but I'll admit I'm enjoying it more than I thought I would. Did you get to play with a scanning gun? Not yet. We haven't gone and done that yet. Oh, get on that, because the scanning gun is the best part. And... It kind of is. <laughs> and on the gaming side of things, my Starfinder game took off this week. Uh, pun intended there. So that, that is on. It is a bad pun, but that's okay. Um, it's off to an excellent start. And it's been a long time since I've run a sandbox or structured sandbox. So I'm excited to be able to do it again. And I'm interested to see where they take it. So it's going to be going to be interesting. You know what? You almost had me do a Pathfinder thing, so grats on you. All right, the Unspeakable has a question. If Grok were reincarnated as a dwarf, would he commit suicide or use it as a way to infiltrate his sworn enemy's lands? Uh, suicide is showing weakness to Grok, so he would definitely use it to infiltrate his enemy's lands. That seems right. Seems consistent. Hey, remember when you said we weren't going to make a character named Grok? And we totally did. There's actually even a character sheet now. Oh, we know. <laughs> All right, so bring on the questions. Feel free to ask anything you want. We can talk about things we've talked about tonight. We can talk about things we've talked about in previous episodes. We can talk about future things that we might talk about in the future. Ask them all. We, we can talk about non-gaming stuff, too. Anything, everything. Oh, definitely, yeah. We can talk about... Things that are happening on Mythweavers. We can talk about things that are happening elsewhere. So, The Unspeakable has a question for Colin. He wants to know, how heavy is the Stars Without Number omnibus? I do not actually know yet. I just got the shipping information. How, how thick is it? One moment. Let me find the picture. I'm probably give you a pretty good estimate. Alright, so, Sarek Hawk wants to know, I know you talked about magic items and making them unique. How do you handle this with higher level starts and the players starting with a plethora of magic items? Alright, Hawk, 
I'm going to assume you're meaning 5th edition. So I deal with it by, if you're at a higher level and you have a lot of magic items, getting one really super awesome unique item. So I give every player one super awesome unique item that kind of breaks rules and gives them maybe a bit more than what they would get otherwise is what I do, what the rest of you guys do. What I would say is if you're just starting a game and it's a higher level game and they have magic items right from the get-go, make the player come up with a story for the magic item. Have them give it a name, have it make them come up with something behind the weapon, give it a unique look, give it something. Uh, put it on your players. If you have, I'm going to assume, anywhere between four and six players and each of them has five or six magic items, that's way too much work for one person to do. So make your players do it. Have them come up, say, okay, you have this plus two longsword. What makes it special? Oh, man. Yeah, I'm thinking 5e where, oh, you have three bonded items. So most of them I have to deal with is three. So, yeah, good advice. Sure. I mean, Pathfinder, I mean, if you start getting up there in levels, I mean, if you start a game at level 10, it's very possible your players are going to have anywhere between 5 and 12 magical items, depending on what they pick up. So, Oh, dear God. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like Pathfinder actually has rules for buying magical items written in. So if you go by wealth by level, it's entirely possible that they have an entire arsenal of magical weapons at the higher levels. Or magic item. Or did I say magic weapons? I meant magic items in general. They have an arsenal of magic items. I think I said that. Well... It's usually weapons, anyway. I think we have time for probably two or three more questions. All right, Nate. What's your best new game starting up? Uh, the Starfinder game is my newest. Um, it is called Remnants of Soul, and it is about... So it's Starfinder, and it's about a group of people who have been... who have volunteered to go on an expedition to explore a new star system. Uh, what the What the characters don't know is that the star system they're exploring is Sol, so our system, with Earth. Um, but they get there at a point where Earth has been completely ravaged by humanity, and the only thing left there is sentient cockroaches who have evolved because of the nuclear radiation. And there are little uh, drones flying around the system, carrying out their orders long after their masters have died. So it's a structured sandbox because the players can do basically anything they want. But so the thing with Starfinder is there's this thing called the drift, which lets them travel between stars in a matter of just a couple days. But this solar system is in a dead zone of the drift. So they are actually 10 years away from any other people, and they don't know if anyone is coming after them or not. Man, I'm with a lot of people now. That would have been like, man, I want to make a character because that sounds awesome. Like, dude, that sounds awesome. And like, I don't like Starfinder, but I totally would have made a game for that. Like, that sounds awesome. My only concern with the game right now is that Starfinder literally the only published thing out right now is the core rulebook. So. I'm kind of having to fudge all of the encounters because I don't know exactly what the Starfinder like monster creation rules are. 
So that's going to be something that will have to uh, be modified once the bestiary comes out. Uh, Sarah Cock reminds me that the Alien Archive comes out on the 18th, which is super hype. I am so excited for that. All right, guys. Any concerts coming out in the last uh, couple of weeks you guys want to hit? Um, I don't have any concerts coming up in the next couple of weeks, but next March I will be traveling to Atlanta to see one of my favorite metal bands in concert. Uh, the name of the band is Camelot, with a K at the beginning, instead of a C. Ooh. Ah, metal. Octana would be so proud and envious. <laughs> yeah, I think they're touring with a couple other bands as well, so I don't remember what the other bands are, though. I gotta see a Tribe Called Red, which is awesome. The Furtive Goblin asks, or says, The discussion of investing money into communities or particular pieces of land slash property before got me thinking, but I'm not quite sure how to shape the question. Does Mythweavers have any experience with campaigns centered around travel, such as being attached to a caravan or a nomadic tribe? I feel like an emphasis on movement skews some parts of classic adventuring, but reinforces others. Okay, I think this is actually two questions, separate questions. So we'll address the question that's actually a question first. Um, do we have any experience with campaigns centered around traveling between places? Uh, yes. I, yeah, I believe all of us do. So travel makes traditional RPG elements harder to do. So like a dungeon, for example, you can't really do a dungeon when you're traveling between places all the time. So in, in cases like that, you have to make, I'm trying to think how to phrase my answer because you can technically still have dungeons, but it's harder to encourage players to go somewhere if they're attached to something else. Like a caravan wouldn't necessarily go to a dungeon, or like a nomadic tribe would tell legends about a dungeon, but they wouldn't actually go there. So I guess, go ahead, Ruben. I, I don't, I'm not sure where I'm going with this. All right. So I've run this. All right. I've run games, traveling band. Deals with dungeons. So, when you set it up, the group going into the dungeon has to say, oh, what's the legend? So, given the local legend, like, oh, if you go into this thing, thing happens. So, you keep feeding the group good dungeon rumors. They go into the dungeon, they uncover something. The, something they uncover should help the group they're traveling with. So it is, oh, where it's bought Y. Oh, you've heard about Tomb X. Oh, if you kill Tomb X, then Traveler Z should go faster. So you have them going to Tomb X, you know, defeat Tomb X, then, you know, Traveler Group Z goes faster. So you can do it, but every time the group kills the kind of tomb, it should make the main group go faster. Oh, does that make sense? Yeah, I think you you basically said what I was trying to say. I just couldn't articulate it. <laughs> yeah, I could hear your train derailing. Yeah, I, I, I really tried to keep that going. So, so let's, let's now address the part of the Furtive Goblins question that is not a question. 
Um, investing money into communities or particular pieces of land slash property. So the thing with that is you want to make sure that, so like this idea of investing in property or land doesn't work with, doesn't necessarily work with a high travel game. It can, but it has to, if it does, then it has to be invest. Okay. So I'll use Starfinder as an example. The thing, the money the players make should be invested in their ship, right? Because that's the thing that lets them go places and do things. So investing in property like that allows them to advance their goals further. Um, and Tiffany Corda says, get a crew, get a ship, keep flying. And that's basically what the, what Starfinder is all about is you have a crew, you get a ship and you want to keep it flying for as long as possible. So you have to invest in that particular piece of property perhaps more than your actual character's equipment. But if it's a static place, excuse me, if it's a stationary place or a thing, like a tavern, then someone has to be sure to make sure the place doesn't burn down while the players are gone. So the players have to invest in those types of resources. It's not just a place, it's the people that keep it running, the people who serve drinks, the people who uh, fix the roof when it's leaking. So investing in property and places is not... I mean, it's like you would do in the real world, right? You buy a house, and as soon as you get in the house, or at least I know I did this, I don't know about anyone else, but as soon as I got in the house, I looked around and said, oh, look at that, I can do that better. Or look, I'm going to hang a piece of art over it. So it's, it's that same concept of... When you have something, you want to make it better than it is. The players can do this too in character as well with basically anything. All right. I think we have time for probably just one more question. Make it a good one. Kimi or Chimi? Chimi? Kimi? Chimi? Kimi. It's, I think we all know who I mean. It's Chimi. Chimi. Kimi. If I'm right, y'all are wrong. If you want to start your own show, Get your own turf and your own listener. Or just wait for Nathan to run out of content. We'll bring you on. Uh, have you looked at the future topics list lately? Yeah, sorry. I've been bad at that. Oh, no, I'm just saying we're not going to run out of content anytime soon. I think we'll probably keep doing episodes until uh, probably the holidays roll around. And then we the will heat death of the universe. Got it. <laughs> well, no, actually, I've been thinking about this lately, because we're at episode 10, right? And I'm like, okay, how many episodes really can we do? And technically, the answer is infinite, as long as we keep having things to talk about. But I think for people, people's sakes, at some point, we will want to take a break, where we don't have to worry about doing, doing weaving myths for a little while. So... I'm thinking probably what we'll do is at the end of November, we will probably call that the end of Weaving Myths Season 1, and then we'll take a, a month or so off to let people do holidays, New Year's, all that stuff. And then in probably February, we'll start back up, and then sometime in the summer, we'll take another break, and we'll call that Season 2. Sounds good to me. So I'm on board with that. So, yeah, I was kind of thinking about that, and I figured I'd let people know my thoughts. <laughs> you know what? I've been having a shit ton of fun doing these, so I hope we don't stop. 
Yeah, I definitely don't want to stop. We we are doing very well. We've been really consistent so far. So I'm really happy with how we've been doing. And I want to keep going. It's just when holiday season rolls around, summer rolls around, people get busy, they go on vacation, blah, 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 blah. Life happens as it does on Mythweavers. And then we go from there. So yeah, I would yeah. say we've got until the end of November of Weaving Myths, and then we'll probably take a break for December and January. Well, into November, I'm an iffy, so... Yeah, all the more we'll reason for us out. to cut it off there. Hey, what was the question? Uh, the question was... Oh, well, Chimi asked, where do you get, get off kicking me out? Because uh, at the very beginning, before the show started, he had jumped in and had started talking to people. Right, uh, or have we just rolled right into After Dark? Oh no, I still need to wrap up the show, but I do want this part to be recorded because I want people to know kind of what the plan is going forward. Alright, and I think killing off end of November into January, good idea. Alright, unless there is another emergency question right here, I will go ahead and jump straight into the end of the show. I'll give it about 30 seconds for someone to type up a question, if they have one. The Unspeakable asks, who stole my pants? Uh, it was probably the ninja standing behind you. Me. <laughs> Chimi, Tiffany Corda says, Chimi stole the Unspeakable's pants. It was me. All right, before we wrap up for the evening, I'd like to take just a moment to remind everyone that Weaving Myths officially has a Patreon. We have several tiers of rewards, ranging from us taking your topic suggestions more seriously than non-patrons, all the way up to receiving a free copy of my latest novel. Additionally, when we reach certain monthly rewards, or monthly goals, we will be putting out extra content that is exclusive to patrons. Most recently, we uploaded the recording of Weaving Myths Does Tabletop, where Mordai ran a Roaring Twenties steampunk heist game for Ruben, Colin, and myself. Contributions start at as little as $1 per month, so it doesn't take much at all to show your support. The patrons over at Patreon help make this podcast possible, so if you haven't already, I'd encourage you all to check it out at patreon.com slash mythweavers. One last thing I should note, Weaving Myths is, always has been, and will always continue to be free. Full episodes are always uploaded to SoundCloud within two days of the episode being recorded, and all normal episodes will always be available for download or streaming free of charge. And if you want to hear all of us getting really, really drunk, yeah, the actual play, that was us. Super, super bombed. I was completely sober. And good evening, everybody. Hey, it's Mordai. Oh, you were not... Yeah, he was totally sober. He was sober. The rest of us, for once, we got Nathan inebriated. It was a blast. I had a ton of fun, for the record. I was super bombed the whole time. So yeah, if you'd like to check out the recording of Colin, Ruben, and myself being incredibly inebriated and playing a tabletop role-playing game, head on over to the Patreon. I was super funny. Ruben almost party-wiped us in the first ten minutes. <laughs> you all did not have specific vision. That would have been awesome if it worked. Alright. Thank you everyone so much for joining us today. It's been a blast, as always, and we appreciate all of the comments and questions from the text chat. I'm Nathan, and I've been joined by the magnificent Ruben. Hello. Colin. Nice talking again, folks. 
and surprise guest, Mordai. Good evening, and thanks for playing. Thanks for listening, and keep on weaving those myths.